Good morning. I'm your host, Aggie Tupo, and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Rwandri peoples of the Kulin Nation. And today on the show, China providing extra security for the upcoming Pacific Games, but why? We take a look at how cover farmers are dealing with damaged crops from Cyclone Lola. And a new study on how antibiotics is proving ineffective for children in the Asia-Pacific region. If a, a doctor is treating a baby that has meningitis and they pull one of the most common antibiotics to treat that off the shelf, then in two out of three circumstances, that antibiotic won't actually work to treat that infection. For more on these stories, simply stay tuned. Again, I'm Aggie Dubow and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, as the Israel-Palestine conflict continues, civil rights groups in Fiji say they're alarmed that police won't allow a march to go ahead in support of Palestinians. The Home Affairs Minister, Pio Dikonduodua, says the permit for a march due to take place on Saturday was denied to maintain public safety. The protest organiser says it was a peaceful march whose intentions have been misconstrued. Mackenzie Smith reports. Amira Dean is a 20-year-old university student and the organiser of Saturday's march. I believe that every individual should have the right to express themselves freely and um, feel safe in their own homes. It is my moral duty to take stand for the well-being of humanity and I cannot turn a blind eye to the sufferings of children who lack basic necessities in Palestine. Dean and her supporters had already distributed materials advertising the march online when the police said on Tuesday it couldn't go ahead. For the activist, it was a disappointing result that misunderstood the values of those involved. What we wanted was people to stand up for humanity and um, stand up for the oppressed. That's what we were advocating for, but unfortunately, um, people here with this different perspective have different um, with different opinions. They have assumed that this is uh, more for a religious Islamic uh, march, and we have a hidden agenda. Home Affairs Minister Pio Tikondua had the job of explaining the police decision to the public. Granting this march means we would also be setting a precedent if we allow this procession. We must, in fairness, grant permission to pro-Israeli group. Now, this could lead to multiple matches, each with its own set of challenges, potentially escalating tensions within our community. While I understand and respect your rights to voice your concerns and stand in solidarity, but it is important that we remain united as a nation while also acknowledging the suffering faced by those in Israel and in Palestine. The minister also took to X, formerly Twitter, to defend the move and attack critics. And when one user asked if there could be a march for peace, humanity, for the innocent people on both sides, Tiko Duandua replied, absolutely. Alini Singh is the executive director of the Fiji Women's Rights Movement. She says not allowing the protest to go ahead violates the rights of Fijians. We are extremely disturbed to hear that the police commissioner has announced that he has decided to rescind the permit. The job of um, the police is to ensure that they provide the necessary permits and provide 
the necessary protection for those that are participating in the the march, um, which was um, explained to be uh, in a peaceful march. She says despite the police's concerns, Fiji is a peaceful country capable of holding a march without spiralling into violence. And she says it's particularly critical that the government allow a solidarity march to go ahead given its controversial decision to vote against a recent UN resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza to allow humanitarian aid into the area. Allowing for a dissenting voice, or in this case, a different opinion, is showing how rich and developed um, you know, our, our society is, our democracy is. But unfortunately, that's another way in which uh, we are not able to exercise those freedoms that we have. Fiji's UN vote has sparked discontent with the coalition member National Federation Party and the commander of the Republic of Military Forces, Johnny Koloniwe, who said it could risk the safety of Fijian peacekeepers currently deployed in the Middle East. Eleni Singh is still hopeful a future march for Palestine can go ahead. As for Amir Adin, she says until such a time, people can advocate as individuals. What we can do as individual people is we can pray for the people and um, create awareness from our own uh, personal platforms like social media, as well as we have NGOs in Fiji here who have been advocating or who have gathered people to show their solidarity for the people, for the lives lost as well. And that's activist Amira Dean ending that report from Mackenzie Smith. Concern is mounting in Canberra after Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Songovare announced China is sending additional police to the country to help provide security for the Pacific Games. Mr Songovare announced this week that China's small police liaison team in Solomon Islands would grow to help provide security for the Pacific Games starting later this month. It's not clear how many additional officers had or would come into the country or exactly what role we'll be playing during the Games. But joining us today discuss the development is ABC's foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jidgets with it. Uh, good morning Stephen. Good morning Aggie. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Well first tell us about Mr Songovari's announcement though. What do we know? Um, and I'm wondering, well, oh, apologies, and I'm just wondering what remains unclear. Look we know very little at this stage and a huge amount remains completely unclear. I mean you guys of course covered this I think first earlier this week on uh, on uh, on Packbeat on on Monday or Tuesday. I think it might have been Tuesday the announcement was made on on Monday afternoon. And look all we know at this stage is what the prime minister's office has told us namely uh, that the the China liaison uh, police liaison team in Solomon Islands will grow uh, in order to help provide security for the Pacific Games. But the basic details are still unclear. And despite spending a couple of days asking pretty much everyone in Honiara uh, this question, it's still not clear to me how many extra police will come into the country. Uh, exactly what role they will play, whether they will be restricted largely to training exercises or whether they will actually provide frontline security in one way, uh, in the same way that Australia and other Pacific Island nations uh, police are doing. At this stage, it is simply unclear. And despite the fact that we've sent questions 
uh, to the police minister's uh, permanent secretary, to the Chinese embassy, uh, and to the RSIPF, the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force, we're still none the wiser. None have got back to us. Stephen, though, this must come out of, of course, the China-Solomon Security Agreement, yes? Yeah, well, actually more likely, although that is un- absolutely the under- underlining framework beneath it, it's the policing agreement, cooperation agreement, that was uh, an implementation plan for which that was signed earlier this year that has probably activated this. Although, of course, as you say, that security agreement provides that broader framework that all of this intensified police cooperation is, is, uh, is occurring underneath. I'm wondering why is the latest announcement regarding additional Chinese police worrying some people in Canberra? Uh, because Canberra doesn't want Solomon Islands, or the Australian government doesn't want Solomon Islands uh, to become a place where China has a meaningful police presence or where it's regarded as a legitimate security partner. Um, Australia said this publicly and privately time and time again, that they don't see any good reason for China to establish itself as a security player in the Pacific. They say if there are any security needs in Pacific countries, then the preference of the forum leaders um, is for Pacific island nations to provide that assistance rather than outsiders. So that's really at the root of this. Australia is uneasy about exactly what China's aims are in Solomon Islands. Mm. and more broadly what its strategic and military aims potentially are in the Pacific. Now, of course, let's be clear, all we're talking about here is a police team. We're not talking about anything like a a permanent military presence or a military base, Uh, but the suspicion, it may be true, it may not be true, but the suspicion in Canberra is that it is a step towards China establishing itself as as a security player and potentially giving itself security and or military options uh, in the Pacific down the track. In other words, this is a first step down what could be a long road in Solomon Islands. Now, it's just very difficult to say whether that's true or not. And uh, without knowing exactly what intelligence the Australian government is drawing on, it's difficult to say with any certainty whether this is just a prediction or something that's firmer than that. But it's a real worry in Canberra nonetheless. Uh, Stephen, look, I have to look at this as a normal human being and think, this is just the Pacific Games. Why is there such an overreach of security? Well, the the Prime Minister seems pretty anxious and has said publicly that he does not want anything to disrupt the Pacific Games. Um, For what it's worth, most analysts that I've spoken to uh, don't think that there will be any real outbreak of unrest in the Pacific Games. They can't see any reason why it would be the spark for political unrest or or rioting, as we've seen in the past. They're more anxious, typically, about next year's elections in Solomon Islands, which will not only be, of course, a significant political event, but also potentially a spark for political controversy and unrest. Um, But nonetheless, it's a big event with a huge number of people coming in. Um, It will require just a little bit of basic security, no matter what, even if there's no chances of uh, of it, uh, even if the chances of it actually spiralling into anything are very slim. Um, But the Prime Minister obviously wants sees this as a flagship event, one that's got enormous symbolic weight for him, but also he believes a huge symbolic weight for Solomon Islands. Uh, And he wants to make sure that he doesn't leave anything to chance, which is why we see more Australian police, ADF personnel, uh, more New Zealand and Fijian and, and PNG police, as well as now this Chinese police presence in Solomon Islands to help provide security uh, through throughout the period of the Games.
Yeah, but Amori, would it not have been better to maybe just ask neighbouring countries like Australia or even the Pacific to supply this extra security? Yeah, I mean, that's Australia's view. Is, yeah, absolutely. And they say, particularly if we're talking about a small number of police, though, <laughs> be careful what you wish for. Um, you know, if, if it's a larger number than that, that raises all sorts of difficult questions. But let's let's take the assumption that it's likely just a smallish number of police. Australia will say, well, simply, what's the point? Why would you want to bring these people in unless you've got other motives? Now, there's a few other things that, that uh, might be happening here. Uh, Manasseh Sokovare might be keen to bring more police in simply to remind Australia that it's a sovereign country and it, do, it does what it pleases uh, and that Australia can't dictate to Solomon Islands exactly who it, who it does, not, does or does not partner with in security and policing. Uh, he might also be trying to signal to people in Solomon Islands, look, here, along with the stadium, uh, which has been built for the Pacific Games and all of those other uh, excellent facilities, um, here is a practical benefit from the from the Solomon Islands-China relationship. We've got more friends coming in um, to provide us uh, help when we need it, um, although it's questionable whether many in Solomon Islands perhaps would, would regard the, uh, the presence of Chinese police in, in that light. Um, so there's a few different things that could be going on. As for China, it Look, even if it doesn't want to establish itself as, as a security player in a significant way in Solomon Islands, um, let's, for the moment, for the sake of argument, discount that uh, that uh, very profound anxiety um, in, in Australia. It also wins itself um, more credibility and it can present itself as a uh, as a major player in the Pacific through initiatives like that. So there's the signalling there from China as well. Stephen, uh you know, the opposition again in Australia have voiced some concerns about the extra police. Is there anything else you can say on that? No, other than what we've reported, which is that uh, the Shadow Foreign Affairs Minister, Simon Birmingham, made a pretty forthright statement when he was asked about the uh, this development uh, yesterday in Australia, um, saying that, uh, that the coalition's view is that Australia and other Pacific nations should provide security for the Pacific Island Games rather than China. Uh, and suggesting that uh, the assurances that Mr. Sogvari has given Australia that it remains the, quote, security partner of choice looked uh, a little bit hollow in the wake of this development with the uh, with the Chinese police being invited in. Clearly, the opposition is concerned about this. I suspect it might ask for some briefings from the government to see what intelligence they've got about the numbers. Uh, and uh, clearly, the opposition here in Australia wants to signal that it's for, for it. It's potentially a domestic political issue as well, because mm. it goes to the heart of security policy and the government's claims uh, to uh, have performed well in the Pacific. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking to ABC's foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jijits uh, about, of course, China sending additional police to the country to help provide security for the Pacific Games. Uh, what is the worst case scenario, though, that Australian officials fear could happen, though, with these extra police, uh, with these extra officers? Well, it's 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 the I guess the worst case scenario is that there's something that people don't anticipate. And in the very worst case scenario, you have a situation where, for whatever reason, Chinese and Australian police find themselves on the opposite sides of a situation. Um, now, this is very speculative, so I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to, to go into it because there's no evidence that this is going to happen. And there may have been mitigating, you know, um, there may have been steps taken by both sides to prevent something like this from happening. But given we don't have much of a clarity of the, the line of command 
um, within the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force and the Solomon Islands Assistance Force with Australia and other um, uh, Pacific Island nations, it, it does look like there could very well be two parallel command structures operating. Now, what's the level of coordination there? We don't really know. Has Australia engaged much with the police from China in Solomon Islands? All the evidence suggests is that no, they haven't. Um, because they don't want to legitimise China as a security player by engaging with them. All of that opens up a space for for miscalculation. Let's say, for example, the Chinese police uh, hear that a Chinese business, for example, has been targeted uh, and race out there um, to protect that Chinese business or a Chinese uh, asset. Um, Let's say, again, purely for the sake of argument, uh, that they respond with overwhelming force, more force than people uh, might have expected and people are hurt or injured or, or potentially or potentially worse. Let's say that the RSIPF hears this, other people call them, and the Solomon Islands Assistance Force goes in to restore order and find themselves in a situation where the Chinese police, uh, for example, um, you know, seen as the main source of trouble. Um, how do they calm that situation down? Is there a risk that sparks conflict between the two police forces? And what are the broader political ramifications of that confrontation? Now, like I say, Aki, I'm a bit hesitant to, to, to speculate like this because we have no idea whether this is at all plausible um, and we don't know what steps might have been put in place in the Australian and other federal police to try and mitigate against this. Mm. But the fact that you've got police operating essentially down different command lines from countries with very different strategic interests uh, in a potentially volatile situation, although there's no suggestion that the Pacific Games are necessarily going to be volatile in any way, um, does raise concerns. And those concerns, I think, just get more acute when you look at the elections next year. What if there is a sizable Chinese and Australian police force on the ground at the same time and major unrest breaks out? What if they perceive, you know, what if what if different interests come into play? It's a it's potentially a volatile situation. Absolutely. And you have painted quite a few scenarios there for us, Stephen. I'm wondering, though, has the Australian government had anything to say about this? Only a very bland statement. Uh, not much. Um, the Australian government has raised concerns about the police agreement before. Um, it hasn't drawn a friendly response from Mr. Sokovare, who is obviously frustrated by any criticism of Solomon Islands policing agreements with China, uh, particularly from Australia, um, who he he believes can have an overbearing or neo-colonial attitude. So the statement that Australia issued this time was very bland indeed, just simply saying that, uh, you know, that Australia is providing help, running through everything that's doing and saying that Australia's presence is consistent with the stated desire of Pacific Island leaders for Pacific-led approaches. So I Mm. guess you could imply a slight criticism there, suggesting that perhaps China's is not, (laughs) because it isn't. Um, But uh, the Australian government's treading carefully. It's not directly criticising this arrangement. Well, we will definitely wait and see how this uh, unfolds. But Stephen, always great to catch up with you. Appreciate your time this morning. No worries. Thanks, Aki. That is ABC's Foreign Affairs reporter, Stephen Jidjits. To Vanuatu, where Prime Minister has called on the Agricultural Ministry to find ways to help carver farmers devastated by Cyclone Lola last week. According to the Vanuatu Daily Post, Shalo Salwai was able to visit Pentecost and Ambrim Islands on Monday, thanks to a French army helicopter sent from New Caledonia. Mr Salwai reports that the damage he saw was worse than that caused by Cyclone Harold back in 2020. He noted that Pentecost is a major cover-growing region and the crops that survived Harold 
have been damaged by Lola. Joining us to discuss the impact on cover production is Michael Luce, Chairman of the Vanuatu Cover Industry Association. With that, I say good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much, Michael, for joining us. I do want to ask firstly, how are you and your family doing during this recovery time? Uh, we we have not been impacted in Villa, but uh, all our like, family members and friends in uh, the outer islands are. So we are mm. fine in Villa, but it's not the case in the island, sadly. Yeah. I mean, just how important is cover to local and the national economy? Well, well, Kava, it's not only a huge traditional importance, but it's also for Vanuatu, it's more than 75% of the export revenue for the country. And that's only for the export. So if you add the local market, it's the commodities circulating more money than anything. Uh, yeah, so the importance is great. Yeah. I mean, what have you heard so far about the damage to the crops in affected areas? Uh, what I have heard from... Uh, the farmers on the ground is that, as the Prime Minister um, highlighted, the damage are way more important than what happened in our world with our world in um, 2020. Uh, Cyclone Harold just passed over Pentecost in one hour. So it was a Category 5 cyclone, but it passed over the island in one hour time. Uh, Lola stays there for seven hours, hovered over Pentecost for seven hours. So, of course, the damage are much, much more important and also spread all along the island, where they were much more localized during the TCR world. So, yeah, the, yes. sorry, the younger plants been uprooted and the older plants been been shaken and are starting to rot. So, yeah, it's definitely a... Michael, with the damage to those crops, though, what do you expect that to do to cover supplies and maybe even the cost or price of it now? Uh, it's we it's a very in, uncertain time um we are trying to see what can be done to recover to recover what um, can be recovered um many ships are going with um recovery item to uh, the impacted islands because it's not only pentecost it's also Ambrim and south malikula and south maivo so what we are trying to help in a way that maybe uh, get uh, most of what has not start to rot to the market, uh, for, for the local market, in, firstly, and also what uh, what can be dried should be dried. So this is an approach we are trying to have right now. That's right, because Prime Minister Selway suggested uh, farmers from the unaffected areas hold their sales to allow those on Pentecost and even Ambrim to make money from their damaged plants. So you believe this is a good suggestion? This is a good suggestion. Um, we had the same suggestion during Cyclone Arrow, but it's more compli- It's complicated to implement. But if they manage to do it, uh, I think that's 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 something really uh, that should be will be helpful. Like Port Vila alone con- is consuming seventy ton of uh, fresh cava every week. So yeah, having the cava coming in Port Vila exclusively from the impacted area will definitely help a lot. If you're just joining us, I am speaking to Chairman of the Vanuatu Cover Industry Association, Michael Luze, here on the impact of uh, the damages to cover in Vanuatu. I'm wondering, has the government offered any financial support uh, for these farmers or is there any help from international aid? 
the, the, the cyclone was just last week, so the, the first relief are arriving on the island, and um, they are trying to um, supply um, um, clear plastic for dryers to dry what can be dried before it rot completely, uh, subsidizing the transport costs to and from the impacted areas. So this is uh, yeah, the kind of support that the government is currently uh, um, providing. And Michael, I know you're well aware cyclone season officially started yesterday. But what work can mm. be what work can be done to somehow future proof these farmers' crops? Are there any other assistance that could be provided to affected farmers? Um, yeah, well, you know, like uh, it's it's getting more and more. Uh, um, we're getting more and more cyclones. Like, uh, you know, we just got uh, two earlier this year, like two category four and five, and we got Arrowhead in 2020 and Palm in 2015. So it can be quite discouraging for farmers. And this, this is a sad thing. Uh, we've got good crops, but the uh, occurrence of the cyclone is getting uh, more and more. So it can be dis- definitely uh, discouraging. Uh, what we are encouraging farmers to do is to plant in many different locations to mitigate the risk, if they can, of course, depending on land availability. But if you plant some time on one side of the hill and the other side of the hill, the impact will not be the same. But yeah, it's, there is only so much we can do. There is, there is no sadly miracle solution uh, when you've got category five cyclones. Absolutely. I'm just wondering though, is there any other assistance that could be provided to the affected farmers? Um, you know, it's it's very, it's still very early, but uh, we could have some uh, food issue too, uh, because most of the taro gardens um, have been more or less destroyed, and uh, that was the main staple for the population of, like I'm talking about mainly South Pentecost or Central Pentecost. So that was the main uh, staple for those farmers. So suddenly, uh, well, they, they they have no no more staple food, so they will be relying on. Uh, rice, more or less, so, which is not something you really want. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I understand it does take some years for, you know, cover crops to grow. So how long do you think the recovery will be for affected farmers? Well, okay, cover, cover is ready to harvest after four years. Let's put it like this. So if they have, if all the some guys come some new gardens planted this year, yeah, well you'll have, you will have to replant everything. So that, another four years, hoping that in the meantime we don't get uh, another cyclone. Yeah, I hear that. That often sometimes it's just the uh, challenge of transport trying to get to these places. Is that the case at the moment? Uh, definitely, there there are some new roads being built on the western part of uh, Pentecost, but the eastern part is totally uh, cut from the world, more or less. You need to um, get into speedboats for uh, four or five hours. So, of course, it's challenging for everything, challenging to uh, get help to the impacted communities and challenging to get the product out of those places. So they will be the, the more remote will be the most impacted. Michael, look, we just want to say thank you for your time this morning. We wish you well and hope that the help that you need is going to be coming soon to you guys. So thank you for your time this morning. Thanks a lot for yeah, reaching no, out. No worries. That is Michael Luze, Chairman of the Vanuatu Cover Industry Association. Uh, stay tuned as we'll have your news wrap with producer Talia Lutia very shortly.
Want to immerse yourself in sport and stories of athletes from across the Pacific? Well, join me, Bobby McCumber, alongside some of the most talented journalists and sports commentators from across the region for Fresh Off the Field. Each week, we'll bring you interviews with Pacific athletes leaving their mark on the international stage and those aspiring to do the same. From cricket to netball, athletics to rugby and everything in between. Fresh Off the Field, Thursdays, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie DeBall, and of course, it is that time where we head around the region to see what is happening, uh, and that is brought to you by producer Talia Tia with our news rep. How are you doing this morning? Doing well, Aggie. <laughs> there is a lot happening, as I Indeed. always say. This is interesting because we keep hearing reactions to Fiji's no vote to the UN Gaza ceasefire vote, but Donga has also defended their no vote. Yeah, that's right. It feels like a lot of international attention is on Fiji's reaction, so I wanted to check in with one of the other six countries who also voted no. And Matangi Tonga reports that Tonga's Prime Minister, the Honourable Huakava Meiliku, when asked by a journalist if the country's vote was aimed at impressing rich potential aid donors, i.e. the US who voted no and Australia who were abstained, the PM replied, quote, we are not trying to impress anyone. This was a sovereign decision made by the government of Tonga. It was then followed up also by Tonga's Foreign Affairs Minister, Fekita Moloa, Utoi Kamanu, who also added that the reason that they had voted against the resolution was because it didn't include a proposed amendment seeking an explicit con- condemnation of Hamas for the October 7 attack and also Israel's right to defend itself. An amendment that failed to get two-thirds support to pass um, mentioned those things, but it didn't make it into the final re- resolution, but Tonga had backed that amendment. The minister also said that given 61 Tongas had, Tongans rather had to be rescued from Israel, if Israel couldn't defend itself, those consequences would be different for those Tongans who got out. Also stating by the minister that the commitment is between member states and because Hamas is not a UN member state, they would not consider the resolution. The minister said that while Tonga does support the call for humanitarian support and aid to reach the people of Gaza, they had to vote on the whole resolution, not just part of it, and that was their justification for voting no. Yeah, I think that's the thing. A lot of people are not aware of the whole understanding of... The nuance. Yes, it's it's Mm, important. Crazy. Okay, Samoa's power boss is refuting claims made by the fire service. Yeah, that's right. There was a spate of fires in Samoa last month destroying homes and buildings and Samoa's Fire and Emergency Services Authority claimed electrical fault as a cause for some of those recent fires. Now, Samoa Observer is reporting that the general manager of the Electric Power Corporation, Faumui Tuilili Toi Moana, has pushed back on those claims, saying that it was highly unlikely it was an electrical fault because of the timings of the fire, saying they occurred at night time and early mornings. Now, he also said that the only time his organisation is actually involved in any fire incidents is when they are called out to cut an active power line to a burning house and that they are not involved in the investigations undertaken by the fire service. Goodness, crazy. Mm. Although we understand Donga still has their power issues too. Yes, it's all happening. <laughs> so they're all jumping on the bandwagon. Hey, there's a new $10 note in circulation in Solomon Islands. That's right. Now, for people who know Pacific Beat, know that know that I love a commemorative note story, the Fiji's um, $7 note is testimony to this. And so even though it was launched back on Friday, it 
hasn't received a lot of attention. And again, why I'm bringing it to you now. So the Central Bank of Solomon Islands has officially launched that much anticipated $10 banknote that has been created to commemorate the country hosting the Pacific Games for the first time. The Minister for Finance, Henry, oh, sorry, Harry Coomer rather, officially declared the commemorative banknote as legal tender. Now, for the most part, the new note kind of looks similar to the regular $10 note in its dimensions and its reddish colour, but on the front, it features the head of the Eagle and the Pacific Games logo, while on the back, you can see athletes participating in sports like weightlifting, rugby and bodybuilding. Um, The Governor of the Central Bank of Solomon Islands, Dr Luke Faroe, says that the banknote represents a historic milestone, as well as the creativity and resilience of Solomon Islands people, and also the role of sport in uniting a culturally diverse nation. I know that you're going to Solomon Islands. I want a $10 note when you come back. I'm going to have to take a selfie with a $10 no, note. No, I want the $10 note. Oh, okay. Bring it back in your wallet for me. Thank I will you. do my best. But thank you, Talia, for bringing us our news rep this morning. Thank you. Still, to come on the show, though, new study on how antibiotics is proving ineffective for children in the Asia-Pacific region. And be aware that we are talking about domestic violence here in Australia, so there'll be a story on that. Uh, you've been tuning into Pacific Beat. Climate Mana is a program about the resilience and solidarity of Pacific people facing the direct effects of climate change. Hosted by renowned climate journalist Langipoiva Sherelle Jackson, you'll hear directly from island reporters in five nations who don't just know what's happening, they're living it. People united in the face of climate change. Tune in to Climate Mana, Tuesdays at 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. Uh, Researchers say common drugs used to treat young children with infections aren't working in the Asia-Pacific. A new study looked into rates of antibiotic resistance in the region and found that medicines recommended by the World Health Organization are often ineffective. Marin Farr spoke with one of the authors, Dr Phoebe Williams from Sydney University, explaining what antibiotic resistance is. What we've seen in the last 100 years since antibiotics were discovered is that as soon as a class of antibiotic drugs are discovered, um, we tend to overuse them, not just in healthcare, but also in veterinary medicine and agricultural medicine. And very quickly, we then see bacteria become resistant to those medications. And antibiotic resistance is a huge threat at the moment because we're seeing that most classes of drugs have resistance reported, um, but we're not discovering new antibiotics to replace those drugs. Mm. Now, you were recently involved in a study looking into rates of antibiotic resistance in the Asia-Pacific region and made some pretty concerning findings. What were they? So we found that um, the current antibiotics that are recommended by um, the World Health Organization to treat common infections in children and babies are really almost more likely to not work than they are to work these days. Because of the pace of antibiotic resistance developing, we have seen in our research that, for example, if a a doctor is treating a baby that has meningitis and they pull one of the most common antibiotics to treat that off the shelf um, called keftriaxone, then in two out of three circumstances, that antibiotic won't actually work to treat that infection. 
And so those rates are really quite alarming um, and there there might be bias towards hospital infections that can be worse than what we see in terms of antibiotic resistance in the community. But either way, they're a real wake-up call to how quickly our current, you know, common infections are becoming resistant to the, the recommended antibiotics that we should be using to treat them. And how common are these types of um, infections in the Pacific region? Is there a a real need for these types of uh, treatments? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, bloodstream infections, sepsis, pneumonia, urinary tract infections, meningitis, these are really, really common infections that can affect children globally um, and particularly in temperate climates like we see in many Pacific Island countries. Your study looked um, at antibiotic resistance, particularly in children. Why the focus on, on young people? So children and babies in particular are very, very vulnerable to infection. When babies are born, they have a very compromised immune system and children in their early years, as anyone who's who's had a toddler go through the early years knows, will we'll frequently get lots of viral infections and sometimes those infections can become complicated by bacterial infections as well. Um, so they're a very high risk group for getting infectious diseases just because of their age. And then when they get them, they're often then at higher risk of having worse outcomes because their immune system is not yet fully developed. You looked at data from 11 countries across the region. Whereabouts in the Pacific was your research focused and was there any challenges in getting data from this um, from this part of the world? I know there, there's often, um, it can be quite difficult to, to gather and collect data from the Pacific. Did you have any issues in that in that area? Yeah, well, one thing we, we did find is that in the literature, the Pacific region is really underrepresented. You know, there's lots of, of studies from some, you know, particularly countries in South Asia like India, China have lots and lots of research and published data out there. But we really did have a lot of trouble finding published data from the Pacific. And um, I'm part of a consortium. I lead a a group called the NEOSEP Consortium, which stands for Neonatal Sepsis in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. And we have some fantastic collaborators involved in that study, including um, an excellent paediatrician in Tonga. Um, and I, I do some some clinical work with some other Pacific Island countries and know that the burden of antibiotic resistance, particularly in their neonatal intensive care units, can be quite substantial. Um, but unfortunately, you know, due to time constraints for those clinicians and sometimes laboratory constraints, constraints for doing some of the tests, um, you know, ascertaining that data is has been very tricky. And I think it's really important we find a way to be able to ensure Pacific Island countries can be part of these programs and, you know, have their their challenges with antibiotic resistance represented globally so that, you know, they can get access to the medications that they need that will be able to fight these multi-drug resistant infections in the future. Just building on that, given these findings that, that you've um, published in your recent research, what, what needs to change or what needs to happen to tackle this issue? So we really, you know, there is nowhere near enough um, research put into finding solutions for antibiotic resistance in children. Um, I mentioned before that there are much higher risk groups than adults, but adults have had 40 new antibiotics licensed for their use since the year 2000, um, whereas for babies that, that number is only four. And that's because, you know, many pharmaceutical companies are very reluctant to do trials in children and babies. They see them as a very high risk population, um, but that means they're often then left off the agenda altogether. 
Um, and so we really need to make sure that research focuses on not just reducing antibiotic resistance globally, but really finding solutions for the most at-risk populations. And, you know, when a baby gets meningitis, they are at risk of dying or they're at risk of long-term complications from brain damage. And, you know, by, by being able to implement interventions that can really reduce the risk for such, you know, young populations that have a whole life ahead of them um, is really important. So we need to see, you know, the right research focus and funding dedicated towards that group. And that's Dr Phoebe Williams from Sydney University speaking there with reporter Marion Farm. Pacific Beat. Now, domestic violence has been described as a scourge affecting women right across the region. It's not just a problem in developing nations. In Australia, some are calling the problem a national femicide crisis. In the past 10 days, six women have died across Australia as a result of domestic violence, bringing the total number of women killed this year to 58. Experts say the National Action Plan to End Gender-Based Violence is failing to make an impact, and there are now calls for the establishment of a national list of domestic violence offenders. Eliza Getsey has this report. A Perth man has faced court charged with murder after a woman believed to be his partner was found dead in a hotel room. Annalyn Oseas was found unresponsive in her kangaroo flat home on Sunday night. Special school address and prayer service will be held at Sydney's Anglican Cathedral this morning in honour of 21-year-old sports coach Lily James. One after the other, all horrific stories. From the East Coast to the West, Sydney's East to regional Victoria. The women's ages ranged from 21 to 65. Alice, Annalyn and Lily, as well as Crystal Marshall and Tai Nguyen, all killed. All allegedly in the same manner by men with whom they'd had relationships. Violence Against Women Prevention Organisation, Our Watch CEO, Paddy Kinnersley, says it's well past time to take action. We know what's driving this violence. It's gender inequality in all of the places we spend our time. And we know the way to um, work to improve that with positive duty in workplaces, respectful relationships, education in schools, conversations about healthy masculinities with young people. So I think the challenge is for the rest of us in the community to take that next step to get comfortable with the discomfort of um, this violence being perpetrated mostly by men, move through that and take a positive view to how we can change the environment. The evidence is clear. Far too many women are subjected to violence. Earlier this week, a study of more than 10,000 young Australians by the Australian Institute of Family Studies revealed nearly a third of 18 to 19-year-olds had experienced some form of abuse from a romantic partner. Today at the National Press Club, sex education advocate Chanel Contos issued a battle cry for all Australians to change their behaviour, saying even the little things contribute to a culture of violence against women. Think about the bottom layer of this pyramid being made up of sexist attitudes, rape jokes and victim blaming. This then props up the next layer of the pyramid that hosts acts such as image-based abuse, stalking and coercion, which then enables the explicit acts that sit at the point of the pyramid like sexual assault, to occur. Letting behaviours at the bottom of the pyramid, like catcalling, locker room banter and groping, go unchallenged, provides a solid foundation upon which more severe forms of sexual assault are normalised. There's a big spectrum of factors causing the violence, societal, psychological and behavioural. Chanel Contos says men are conditioned from an early age. She wants tougher conversations to be had about pornography. One of her concerns is she believes it's the main form of sex education many young Australians receive. In December 2020, 
research on the damage of non-fatal strangulation uncovered that once a woman had been strangled, her chances of being subsequently murdered rose by eight times. At the same time this has been found to be true, choking has become increasingly prevalent in young men's sexual behaviour, including in young men who do not have a violent bone in their body. How has it become so that a significant indication that a man is going to kill you has become commonplace in the bedroom. Some experts describe it as a national crisis. Professor Kate Fitzgibbon is from the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre. What we see from the National Community Attitude Survey is that vast majority of Australians recognise that domestic violence is a national issue. But a significant portion of them don't think that it's happening in their own suburb or town. So there's this disconnect. When we know, when we look at the prevalence rates, this is happening everywhere, in every corner of the Australian community. So we need all Australians to understand what their role is to help us drive towards elimination. We need action and we need an elevation of the issue to match the scale of the problem. So we need funding for the crisis point when people are trying to keep themselves safe and leave an abusive relationship. But then we also critically need that long-term sustained funding for early intervention and prevention. Because if we don't invest in prevention, we're going to keep having this conversation for 5, 10, 15 years to come. So we have to do that hard work. We know that this violence, that the deaths that we've seen over the last 10 days are preventable. This week, the federal government announced funding for a three-year trial program to address toxic masculinity on social media. Education experts say it's a positive step in acknowledging the impact of misogynistic influences like Andrew Tate on boys and young men. Tarang Chowler's sister Nikki was murdered in 2015. He says failing to protect women also means failing men. I come across this with young men and those views are ingrained so young. The flip side of the same coin that is women being harmed en masse by men in this country is the woeful statistics for men and men's health as well. So we we really have to tackle this as a national crisis that it is. Uh, and, And I only hope that the number of women that have been killed in the last two weeks is an impetus for governments to take this seriously. Some states are acting, including Western Australia. Attorney-General John Quigley says he'll consider implementing a national family violence register. And that's Eliza Getsy reporting. Now, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence in Australia, please call 1-800-737-732 or seek the helpline in your country. That does bring us to the end of the show. Time to take a look back at one of our main stories today. Concern is mounting in Canberra after Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasi Songovare announced China is sending additional police to the country to help provide security for the Pacific Games. The fact that you've got police operating essentially down different command lines from countries with very different strategic interests in a potentially volatile situation, although there's no suggestion that the Pacific Games are necessarily going to be volatile in any way, um, does raise concerns. ABC's foreign affairs reporter there, Stephen Jidgets. For more on these stories, head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. And you can also hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. But tomorrow, you'll have Richard Ewart with your sports edition at 6am PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia though because news is next and coming up after that is Nisha Daily. I'll be back next Monday but until then I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Pacific Beat.